This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the season three wrap for Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Today, you'll hear an excerpt of my conversation with Aaron. We will talk about our expectations for House of the Dragon. I'm going to be having a little argument with Carl Nellis. It's not much of an argument. He wins pretty handily. And I concede pretty quickly about genre in Game of Thrones. And he calls me out for some of the derisive things that I've said about fantasy literature at large. And he's totally right. He also has some really great suggestions for summer reading of other fantasy series. Steve and I field listener questions. And then in my bird's eye view section, I answer definitively once and for all. The question on everyone's mind, is it possible to be both a battlefield badass and a genius strategist in Martin's world? The answer, of course, is no, but maybe. <laughs> so anyway, uh, without further ado, here is Boseman Aaron. Actually, you know, I uh, I had my Game of Thrones heart kind of broken. I, I, I had a very public... Uh, break up with the double D's and, and, and all that in season eight. But I got to say, as I'm you know starting to research and getting into some of the stuff about the fire and blood, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the excitement grow. And I'm mm. also like, I'm really hoping for House of the Dragon to be really good. And, you know, from the, the casting stuff and some of the leaks I've seen, like it, it looks like Game of Thrones. Yeah. And there's plenty of intrigue. Uh, the, the, the only thing I've worried I talked about this with Jim on the uh, preview thing that we did in between your last two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I'm a little bit worried is uh, Game of Thrones sucked in a lot of people with the West Wing uh, house house of cards style politics. And they sure. really the magic like years, you know, you, you start the thing with like a slap in the face with ice zombies. But that this just goes deep background until the finale of season one. And then the the magic stuff keeps getting pushed back to the background for the first two or three seasons, and then of course it comes you know roaring back with the the dragons and the White Walkers and all that kind of stuff. This series is not going to be like that. This series is going to be dragons at their most powerful. Yeah, uh, you're going to have the pyromancers at full power. You're going to have warlock. You're going like you. They've already got some kind of uh, witch character in the retinue of the ki- uh, of the the royal family. I, I do wonder if it's uh, going to be a little bit too Lord of the Ringsy, but I don't know. Like, you know, Game of Thrones had a hundred million fans watching it day one uh, at its at its peak, uh, and these people are even if they were like, ah, I don't like that sword and sandals and dragon shit, they got into the swords and sandals and dragon shit. So it seems plausible for me that like even factoring in people maybe being disenchanted by season eight, half of that audience is going to come back just out of curiosity. 
I think and so. If it's, and if it's a good first season, watch out. They could be back on top just like that. Let me ask you this question. So if you think of all the Star Wars films in the yeah. franchise, how many of those do you actually really enjoy that don't feature Han Solo? Oh, that don't feature Han Solo. Ooh, that's a damn good question. Because uh, I'm not a big prequels fan. I like Rogue One. Oh, you like feature. Rogue One? Okay. I did like Rogue One. I Jin doesn't, but I, I really like Rogue One. I thought Rogue One was really good. Um, that's, yeah, not many. Not many. See, I, that's my concern. My concern is that if you take Tyrion Lannister out of the story, does the story still have enough to bring that magic to life? Because I feel like a lot of what made Star Wars work is you, you've got that Han Solo character to kind of balance out the you know space fantasy stuff. I, I do feel have like Tyrion kind of fills that void and I if you don't bring in a Dinklage type I I'm going to be worried I'm going to be worried. Well, we do have Corlys Valerian, the sea snake, who is literally Han Solo on a wooden sailing ship. Okay, uh, well, that's you a good know, point. got the got the fastest hunk of junk in in the kingdoms, and yeah. he like so. I I, I kind of got high hopes for some of these other colorful characters. We all also we we did love when we were reading Fire uh, uh, Fire and Blood. We did love us some uh, Cregan Stark. <laughs> that's true. Uh, you got you got the, we got the hour of the wolf to look forward to. There, I mean, there. there some there's some there's some good stuff there's some good stuff uh mushroom i was campaigning really hard for mushroom the dwarf to make an appearance so mushroom i feel like mushroom is I he's bizarro Tyrion. Like he kind of is bizarro Tyrion, which is kind of interesting in and of itself but uh, yeah, yeah yeah um and it would be it'd be a lot of fun like i i, I, I this is not gonna happen this is just pure fan bullshit but like I do have this idea of like, oh, what if they got Peter Dinklage to like the framing device is mushroom old and, 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 and uh, satisfied with his days in some kind of alehouse in Westeros decades after this has all taken place. Like, you know, no one recognizes him. He's just kind of re- and it's Peter Dinklage, you know, aged up and he's just <laughs> just drunkenly starting to recount these tales. And that's that's like it's kind of like a how I met your mother. But it's like in the first episode and the last episode. <laughs> I think that would be really cool that these are just just as this mushroom in some kind of tavern uh, telling tales to anybody will flip him a silver stag. <laughs> well, uh, one thing's for sure. I will be watching. I will absolutely be watching House of the Dragon. Hell Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, you know, it's got the benefit of the doubt for sure. It's- yep, and and we will all know by next year whether <laughs> they've rekindled the magic, whether the fires of the dragons are burning again, or whether, you know, we've got a we got a false spring situation on our on our hands. All right, man. Always great to connect. Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Talk to you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hey, Carl, I would like to talk about some larger genre issues because I think you and I may have some good, uh, you know, some good friction. <laughs> yes, yes. Here, I, I actually just want to have the conversation. I, I don't have a strong opinion to defend, but I, I think that you might have some interesting ideas about what kind of genre we're dealing with. Well, I do because, you know, I mean, I, I love Game of Thrones. I also uh, love this show that you've been making and the conversations that you've had with other guests so far um, have been so rich and really fun. Of course, one of the things that makes listening in on good conversations fun is, is finding points where you disagree. Uh, mm -hmm. Even where you disagree, oh, passionately. You know, earlier in this podcast, <laughs> you said that, you, you know, you, you were talking about genre at that point, fantasy and science fiction, and you said... Um, when people say they like fantasy and science fiction, your guess was that most people like science fiction and maybe there's one or two works of fantasy that yeah. they actually like. Yeah. And, and this is all oh, what set me off, where you said, and that's really because most fantasy is unreadable. Yeah, I do think that. I, I'm a, I, I feel bad saying it because some of my favorite works of literature are fantasy but there's some really bad stuff out there, Carl. That's true. And and you you first said that in a conversation with Chad. Yeah, and right. I really like that Chad pushed back a little bit and he said, I, I think that's probably pretty true for science fiction too. That, you know, there's a, a small amount of really good stuff and then there's kind of a mass yeah. of And okay I think Chad stuff. might have also said something like, Hey, that's true for most of every all literature. All Yes. <laughs> I'm really picky and most of the stuff is you know, regardless of genre. It's pretty bad. Exactly. So I was like, yes, Chad. <laughs> uh, and it, it wasn't quite a full rejoinder to what you said. But yeah, I kind of heard a black mark against a genre, but mm -hmm. in a way that was bringing in criticism that's basically true of, <laughs> of writing. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think about scholarship in many fields and think there's a lot of good stuff and there's a lot of mediocre stuff. Uh, you know, I think about most published work, you know, across genre, like, like Chad said. You know, so of course I thought, I started thinking about the other fantasy that I really, really love, that I find just as rich as Tolkien or Martin. The, the first thing that comes to mind is Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which mm. is amazing. And similarly to, to Martin, and you know, my personal opinion is that it surpasses Martin in this way, that it is so dense with literary allusions and engagements with, with history. You know, and one of the things that's really fun about Martin is that you can jump to, you know, to medieval history, to the Wars of the Roses, to, you know, all those things that you want to bring in as mm. enriching context. The same kind of thing you can do with Susanna Clarke's book. I'm reading a book now by Sophia Samatar called A Stranger in a Laundria. That similarly, just the richness of the world building is incredible. And the voice mm -hmm. of the narrator, so stylish, so fascinating, so such a pleasure to read. You know, well, I haven't, I absolutely haven't tried that at all. So I, I will give that a try for sure. If, if you, you know, I do feel that way. I mean, here we have the problem, I think, with ratio versus anecdotal evidence. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Because, you know, we have, like, for instance, like, I love. Uh, Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow. Right. Oh, yeah, me too. Easily classified as a science fiction. I think it's an amazing uh, book, but if I start to think, you know, so I can, I can kind of point to that as just really wonderful science fiction. But 
what I'm not thinking of that I can't even think of the names of, I can't, but I know that it's true. I can't remember the name of the 10 titles that I picked up and started reading and couldn't get through the first chapter <laughs> because it was just unreadable. And then, of course, you find that one piece and that's the one that sticks in your memory. I don't know. It's, it's so, so I guess here's my question. Like, do you feel like the ratio for quality fantasy is as high as the ratio for good science fiction, if against the backdrop of the other works in, in the genre. Yeah, I do. And some of that is because of <laughs> how many science fiction series, novels, I've tried to read and quit after the first chapter. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and, it's and, a good point. And not to say that I'm some kind of high-minded reader. No, like I spent middle school and high school just reading and rereading over and over, you know, Star mm. Wars novels. Right. Uh, just, just writing in my favorite And, and, you know, Star Wars is one of those ideas that always gets argued about at the crossroads of science fiction and fantasy, right? You know, what's going on with the Force and these knights and these swords? Yeah, I'm always always arguing that that Star Wars really is fantasy. Yes, yes. So, (laughs) But those books suck. So, I mean... (laughs) But I love them. You know, I I can love them. You're just not going to win me over with those books at all. But here's the other thing with sci-fi. I think until very recently... Sci-fi on film was sort of the standard sci-fi on film was a B movie. Yes. You know, the plot, dialogue, the the acting, we all kind of forgave. I mean, I love I absolutely love all of the Star Trek uh franchise, but I have to acknowledge that most of the acting is just not great, you know, it's just it's it's high concept, fantastic not very well delivered. I think it's just been in the last couple decades that we've actually seen super high quality storytelling when it comes to the the genres that we used to kind of assign to sort of a B movie kind of storytelling technique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean one of the writers that I studied when I was looking at medievalism in literature is Jack Vance. And mm. he's a he's an author who was writing science fiction and fantasy. And one of the things that I loved was looking at his letters with editors. You know, I was an editor for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And he was constantly submitting work to John Campbell, who was editing Analog at the time, one of the major science fiction magazines. And Campbell was a, you know, a giant in science fiction in shaping what is science fiction. You know, we're talking mid-century you know, mid 1900s. Mm-hmm. And Campbell was constantly turning him down because he was saying, this isn't science fiction. Uh, and oh. Vance was saying, <laughs> it's too, it's too good. Well, Vance was saying, <laughs> it's not pulpy enough. Well, Is that what it he's wasn't saying? technological. It wasn't oh. a physics problem or a mechanics problem. And Vance was saying, we're, we're, you know, my characters fly to an alien world. They meet this alien, and it's about biology. And the science that's involved here is this alien biology and these eggs. And, and Campbell was having right. none of it. He was like, soft science. You know, he was like writing off biology as right. a science and he saying. Wanted, he wanted something that like dealt with some machine. Yes. Yes. Some machine that a human created that changes everything for the human. <laughs> yeah. So border trouble, right, between what's science fiction and what's fantasy mm-hmm. or, you know, what's what's good enough to be called science fiction or, you know, it was also interesting listening to one of your later conversations uh, with Dr. Webster, where he was talking about science fiction as the fiction of social dilemmas. And, and he was also talking, what I heard at least was science fiction, good, fantasy, eh questionable and i almost hear this kind of i did get that sense with him now i think i think his larger point was he thought 
He thought that Martin basically traffics in science fiction and horror. And that this really, this book really is a science fiction, or a Game of Thrones is really a science fiction that's kind of disguised as a fantasy. And I think, I don't feel strongly about that, but I do think that there's some merit to viewing this book as a hybrid. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, I mean, I've read I've read science fiction disguised as fantasy, like uh, Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Purn, you know, which starts out as like right. Dragon Riders medieval, and then over time you realize, oh, this is you know people who crash landed in a spaceship on an alien world right, with these teleporting right, right, right. lizards, you know. Um, but what I heard in that was a little, you know, with someone who likes Game of Thrones, but is a little bit ashamed that they like fantasy, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have to figure out a way to decide that it's actually something that's mm-hmm. respectable to like. Science fiction, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, and I think about other recent fantasy that's been published, like N.K. Jemisin. And I think that there may be a similar kind of polemical move when I call Star Wars fantasy. Yeah, it's like I, I mean, I, it's just a preference thing. I like the elements of fam a fantasy can be a lot more loosey goosey than the elements of the kinds of sci fi I like. But even in saying that, I kind of know that most sci-fi plays fast <laughs> and loose with, with the rules. Yes. And I tend to forgive it in, in those ways. Yeah. I mean, if you want, if what you want is a very grim, dark fantasy of apocalypse that deals with oppressive social regimes, including like, you know, sexual predation and people trying to find their way out of a rigid and violent hierarchy, read N.K. Jameson's uh, Broken Earth, you know, the fifth season, the first the first novel. Fantastic. Recent book, recent series, won all kinds of awards, fantasy, but it engages some of the things that, you know, might be considered social dilemmas or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, our, our fear now of apocalypse is, you know, so similarly kind of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, you know, what do you want to call it? It's fantasy. It's very obviously fantasy, but it doesn't shy away from engaging those deep questions and social dilemmas that make fiction powerful. So I hear your um, a, a, a strong defense of fantasy as a genre. I think you're right that this interview series has, uh, without warrant, maligned <laughs> maligned the genre, and uh, and I offer a, a heartfelt apology to all who are offended, but by my. Just by my unjustified polemic against fantasy literature. Well, let me, (laughs) I want to offer you an olive branch and say, I know that one of the things you love, because you've written two books about it, uh, coming out of Game of Thrones, is religions, religious systems, you know, the difference between personal devotion and tradition and those kinds of things that, you know, that, that your two Gods of Thrones books are about. There's a series by Lois McMaster Bujold, uh, that starts with the curse of Chalion that has such a fascinating theology to it. Hmm. The mm-hmm. religious systems. It's, it, okay, th- tell me that one again because I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, the series is even called The World of the Five Gods. Okay. Um, the the first book is called The Curse of Chalion. Um, okay. I think I might have started that at have one you? point. And you found it unreadable. No, I wouldn't say unreadable. <laughs> I just don't have a strong memory of it. It could have been like one of those times where like I started something and then I had a writing project that kind of yeah. sidetracked me. Yeah. Um I did I think I did try to start that first book at one point. But um let me let me ask you a question. Do you think that Game of Thrones 
has sci-fi elements? Do you think it's a hybrid between sci-fi and fantasy? Do you think it's disguised as fantasy? Or is your definition of fantasy broad enough to include all of the sort of elements that we would normally associate with sci-fi in Game of Thrones? Yeah, I mean, I think for folks who really love fantasy, it's easy to make distinctions between something that's grimdark, something that's high fantasy, something that's sword and sorcery, something that's, you know, there, mm-hmm. there are all kinds of ways of talking about literature, you know, that uh, you can cut it and you can cross cut it. You know, you can talk about environmental fiction, you know, here where we we have this winter that's coming and the things that Martin's doing, the seasons and fear of apocalypse, you know, but environmental fiction can cut across things that would be known as fantasy or science fiction or you know literary fiction contemporary yeah i want to i want to talk more about uh, environmental fiction because i think that what gets underplayed here especially in this first book is all of the work that martin has done to really call out the what is the most weird about this world and that is the magical seasons yeah right yeah and there's a little bit you know there there's there's some fantasy elements of this you know like um you know for instance you know the the always winter and never christmas theme and in, in, uh, <laughs> in lewis's chronicles of narnia yeah uh but of course that that's also a metaphor for exile and you know sort of the, just the you know the the symbolism of of good weather is usually a sim- symbolic for life right if you can trust the weather, you you know it's going to be life ahead. And if if the weather does not allow it, then there's death because crops or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's that polarity between good weather equals life, bad weather equals death. That to me is sort of the gurgling undercurrent of this book. It's never really explained, but Martin has been pretty adamant that the only uh, explanation you're ever going to get for why this is the case is that that the seasons are magic in this world. So here we have this sort of key sci-fi element, but when pressed on it, Martin has always kind of gone to a fantasy explanation. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear you talk more about sort of the environmental elements here. Well, I'm really interested in <laughs> where an author brings magic into their world. You know, what Mm. does the magic do? What does it almost cover for? You know, what is it Mm. that they want to have in their story so much that they put it in? There isn't a mechanism that they can explain behind it, so they say, well, that's the magic. Mm. Um, So, honestly, what I see in that is a really powerful idea where Martin wants to say, what would human life be like if these seasons were like this, if winter was this devastating, if summer was this long. Mm, mm, um, and this push to explain, 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 you know, show me, you know, strip away the outer casing and show me the engine underneath. And he's saying, <laughs> this is how the world works. This is the mystery, except the mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we want to see is the consequences of that. Uh, that is a kind of move that is often made in fantasy. You know, this is what I want this is a kind of hypothetical that I want Mm -hmm. to play out fictionally. And it's not about, you know, bringing my empiricism to it and stripping off the, whatever the veil Mm -hmm. and getting at the mechanics. And maybe this is what you say. Part of what you love about science fiction is being satisfied by the, the mechanics of a world. There's this delicate thing that an author needs to do, uh, whereby I'm happy to suspend disbelief. Yeah. 
but there's like a threshold, and if you cross the <laughs> threshold, then I kind of feel like, eh, it's too much. And which is really kind of remarkable, considering how much magic is actually in this world that Martin's creating. Yeah, I mean, it's just all over the place. But it's in this first novel, it's really subtle. It's, at least it's presented that way early on, anyway. Right. Right. I do feel like okay, so. Now that we're talking about sort of the larger themes of ice and fire, I, I mean, my my sense is that, you know, the the others are really kind of an avatar for winter. Uh, that that much seems very clear to me, and and the dragons, you know, dragons coming into the world really bring a balance to that because, uh, you know, that even though they're monsters, they're really avatars for the heat. And so in order for the world to kind of work the way that it ought to work, you almost need these sort of battles between summer and winter. I don't know. What do you think? Am I, am I making too much of the Avatar thing, do you think? No, no. I mean, I what I like is that we have these embodiments of... Right, the, those powers, those elemental forces, and you're going to have the periods of their dominance and, and summer and winter, you know, some of them rising and some of them falling. And that, you know, calling on something like uh, Norse mythology and the Ginnungagap and, and mythologies where ice and fire are, are key, you know, and mm-hmm. life comes out of fire melting the ice and, and, you know, melting the ice away from a living thing that is able to emerge because of the fire. You know, it's kind of existentialist in that meaning and that life is born out of this struggle. And there's plenty of struggle in Martin, you know, and often what he's writing yeah, with these characters. Yeah, in that characters. way, dragons really do function. Like, if if that if this little thesis we're developing yeah. works, um, it, the dragons really do function the way that dragons functioned in Chinese mythology where the dragon lives under the river and then brings the rain when it flies to heaven mm. or flies to the the clouds or whatever so that the dragons will actually bring rain and you need rain you know the, the farmers need rain for the crops but really you need a, a sort of this this yin yang balance between the tiger energy and the dragon energy and i think that even though martin doesn't really draw a whole lot from Eastern mysticism. It, if this little thesis we're developing holds water, I think that I think that the dragons kind of do function in the way that Chinese dragons do. Mm. And I would even say that Martin's world is structured around a kind of dualism, like you're saying. I mean, you could even you could say like a Manichaean dualism, or or you know that yeah. that that right. that violence of opposing forces is simply like the basic structure of the world mm-hmm. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you've got monsters on this side and monsters on that side. They're not good or bad. Yeah. They're just monsters, and they don't care about humans, uh, but it's their job to, to battle the, their opposite. And unfortunately, being a human in between two monsters, it can be really perilous. Right, and the only way to win a future is to fight. You know, the only way to to preserve life is to struggle kind of thing in the midst of the of the global of the universal right. forces that that struggle and fight and kill and die yeah. and are reborn human beings caught amidst those forces also have to struggle and fight and kill and die and be reborn i 
I wouldn't like crank it up. I've tried that before and it hasn't gone very well. Because it's on, I could put it back to auto. This... I don't think I'm really going to know unless, until I actually hear the file. Okay. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell just by this. So I, I say let's just go for what's it. Your, and... what, what, what's your problem? let's 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 start that let's let's start the q a right now what's your problem i mean i guess it probably relates to growing up in a family with six kids being an introvert and never finding a place to kind of be alone right i I guess everything probably stems from that it could be there's a lot of religious baggage i would imagine Sure, and being the only male um, uh, child without a twin probably is a problem. And also the third child. Third born, least wanted, probably. The third child is always a little weird, I think. It's well, always you could have been the end. Like, we had a unit. We had a good, solid unit here. We've already proven we can do this twice. A third? Do you really need a third? Well, see, I look at it like, I mean, you have the first, you have the rough draft, right? Um, yeah, you're like, okay, we're gonna do everything we can to protect it because this is like the only mm-hmm. work I've done. And then you have the second draft and it's like, okay, this one's got like a bunch of notes on it. And you're like, okay, the third one, I'm turning this one in. And then it was you and they're like, okay, this one we're turning in. We've, mm. we've, we've had our, mm. we've, we've taken mm. our lumps as parents. And then they just started just pumping out more babies, right? Just, just. Well, at that point them. it was like, okay, we're not going for quality anymore. Just quantity. That's what we're doing yeah, now. We're just going to throw a bunch we need of these at the three wall. Three more of these things and hope yeah. one of them works out. Yeah. And then they had to group on for the last two. So that worked out. Interestingly enough, none of us really worked out. No. No, that's, uh, that's, that's a cautionary tale, isn't it? Yeah. It's very rare that you'll have six kids and they all turn out to be, you know, not, not great. Just right. And the beauty of it is, is people. That as the expectations lower, the disappointment somehow gets higher. <laughs> See, I think That's at some incredible... point you got to think there is something genetic here because it could be that it's just these two people weren't meant to produce human beings. <laughs> right. Or not as many, right? Because then they like now their attention is so divided. Um, <laughs> and it was like, well, maybe if we just put all our eggs in one basket, you know. And then, no, I mean, I get it. Like, I mean, like, as a parent, you know, it's like you have all these different, like, your expectations are so different, right? And like, and that's what I realized. If you lower your expectations, uh, the the chance of being disappointed are less. Like, it used to be like, oh, my son will be, you know, like, maybe he could be president someday. And then at the end, you're just like, as long as he outlives me, um, I feel like I did okay. President, I never thought president would be a great thing for a child. Like, I, I, it's always a weird thing to wish on a child. But it guarantees they move out. <laughs> That's true because they get their own they get their own yeah. residence. Exactly. At least for four. That's years. what I'm camp- that's what I'm campaigning for. Heavy. All right. So I think I think the mic needs to come in a little closer to the mouth. Like if you can see what I'm wise. doing, I mean, I'm almost deep throating this. I'm almost deep throating this thing. You got to deep throat it. You you have to. Yeah, dude. I am like yeah. That's I'm it. Getting, I'm cross-eyed by looking at this thing. You're in. You're right there. You're in. You can't ever move now. All right. So so here we go. Okay. Let's count it down. Okay. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Let's count it down again without the sarcasm this time. I was I did pretty good. <laughs> without the attitude, please. 
You know what? I'm gonna get farther away from the mic. Uh, all right, Steve. I uh, got questions for you. I got questions for me. I'm gonna start with a question for you. Okay. This question is from Anthony in Dayton, Ohio. Huh. Yeah. I don't do last names. So, <laughs> Steve, season three was bear heavy. How do you feel about bears? <laughs> um, I got mixed. I got mixed feelings on bears. I'm on record. <laughs> for you are mixed... on record. In yeah. fact, you were interviewed just recently in our local newspaper. Uh, yeah, the chan- actually KTVU Channel Two News. Uh, I was on the ten o'clock news. Um, as I was as I was pulling into uh, my shared driveway, an easement, if you will, I saw this guy tromping through my neighbor's yard with a very large camera and a very large tripod. So you have no idea who he was. He no, said he fact, was from I, yeah, the news. Well, I was all ready to give him attitude. I um, yeah, I stepped out of my car because he was making his way towards my house, and I was going to do the. Uh, uh, can I can I help you with something, friend? You know, like the you know when you say friend. Oh man, that is that cuts yeah. deep. Sure, um, sure. So I was all ready. I you know, and then he says, uh, "Have you heard about the bear?" Immediately let my guard down. Like immediately, all my attitude, which shows that I I, I was probably bluffing even to myself. I probably wasn't. So gonna do that. backstory for the listeners here. I guess there was a bear sighting near your house. Uh, numerous. There's uh, numerous bear sightings uh, via the Nextdoor app. We've uh, people have been showing that their little night cameras have shown a bear nearby. I even talked to a person that worked at the mail, the post office annex yesterday, and she's like, "Oh yeah, that bear. That bear's been around for a long time, just not in that area." I'm like, "We just wait. What?" Yeah. So the bear just got lost. Well, the bear's and this born. apparently is newsworthy in Sebastopol. California. Right, because we don't get bears apparently. But to some people, they're like, yeah, no, 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 the bear's there. You just gotta look for it. This time, you don't have to look for it. The bear shows up. This is what happens when you have like these social media apps, right? These next door apps. I mean, that bear has probably been, you know, now that we have so many cameras, we have cameras on everything, cameras on our mailboxes, our doorbells. Uh, bears don't get to live in an- anonymity anymore at all. So it's okay. not, it's not the bears. I don't think that are are different. It's us. So, so how do you feel about these bears? Uh, I like bears. I, I, and I said this on the news, and I'll, and I'll reiterate it because I, I, it doesn't make it less true now that we're doing the same interview. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I would really like the idea. One part of me is like, I like the idea of seeing a bear. And then there's another part of me that's like, I don't know if I ever need to see a bear. And it's a wrestling mm. match internally. Because it is, it's tough. Because it's like if I saw it, I'd be like, oh, like, like my wife was very clear. Like if you saw a bear, like this became a thing. Like I was like, oh, I would love to see a bear, and she's like, if you saw a bear right now, you couldn't handle it. I'm like, come on, I could handle a bear. <laughs> she's like, if there was a bear in our backyard, you would freak out. And I'm like, and then I got like really like irritated because I'm like, no, I don't think so. That's I think I would. Steve, that's what Steve sounds like when he's really irritated with yeah. Heather. No. No. I don't think so. Well, I mean, and if there's anybody that knows me, probably the best, I would assume it's my wife. And I just felt really like, how do you, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? Right? And I don't know. I mean, honestly, if I saw a bear, I would do one of two things. I would go, I, would, I made this noise. I'll, I'm going to share with you and the listening audience a noise that I didn't know I had the capability of making. And uh, when I was on a Mexico trip, 
Um, we were staying at this very bizarre little compound type situation. And they had a couple of really um, large dogs uh, that kind of protected the property. Is this like a, uh, a drug situation? Uh, no. no you're it was like you're a... describing the cartel is what you're Yeah. Look, man, let's, we have to go into details. Look, yada, yada, yada. I was in this compound. There was a bunch of guard dogs. <laughs> All right. And so I, I went in the middle of the night to urinate outside. And one of the dogs did not know that I was, you know, uh, compound friendly and came up behind me and growled the most terrifying guttural growl. And I'm standing there urinating and I did something I did. I went, I made that noise out loud. (laughs) I didn't mean to just, it just sort of fell out of me. You learn interesting things about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, there's 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 those that fight, there are those that go with flight, and there are those that are just uh, trying to work on a harmony by themselves. <laughs> yeah, it was as if I was trying to blow into a kazoo without the kazoo. Like, that's the noise we make without the kazoo. Mm-hmm. Um, fascinating thing about uh, the California black bear, I think it comes in six different colors. Not just black. No. No, it's brown, you get white, you get blonde, you can get cinnamon. You get a white black bear. Yeah. Yeah, so apparently when the settlers named it, they saw a black bear and says, that's a black bear forever. Mm-hmm. All the all the bears are black bears. Like, I mean, that, and that's, man, talk about, that's the pressure I think that we put on ourselves. Imagine, like, you're just feeling like, oh, well, we got to name this thing now because we discover it. Mm-hmm. And and you get the one dumb settler who saw it first and is like black bear and you're like oh come on man I'm gonna name it anything <laughs> could have been any kind of bear like it was over there by the lake it could be lake bear or it could be like sweetwater bear but like no you you called it black bear and like oh look there's a brown one of those yep also black bear okay come on stop <laughs> it there's white black bears there's cinnamon black oh, well. <laughs> All righty, all righty. This is a question from our old friend Baton Rouge Billy. He's back, Steve. <laughs> That's right. Uh, this Good is a question for me. <laughs> Red Stick Bill. Red Stick Bill. Welcome back, Red Stick. Uh, this is a question for me. Are you enjoying this rewatch more now that Steve is involved? Or are you enjoying it less because it's more work, because of the podcast, how are you finding the differences this time around? Well, Bill, <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying it a lot more. I mean, I enjoyed it. It's certainly different. You enjoy something the first time around. And if you're willing to watch it again, you probably enjoyed it a lot the first time around. If you're willing to watch it multiple times, you probably really like it anyway. I think getting Steve involved has definitely enhanced my appreciation of the show because because Steve likes it too and so I'm kind of watching it vicariously through Steve's eyes and I get a little there's a little bit of like um I don't know sort of evangelistic zeal like I know Steve <laughs> wouldn't necessarily like a fantasy epic but because I like I coaxed him in and I got him to watch it and he likes it, I kind of feel like, yeah, I, I won one for the team. I won a convert for our side. 
So yeah, I, I that these are all the so, ways that I'm enjoying. So this is sort of like when uh, James Dobson and Ted Bundy meet in heaven. <laughs> are you assuming that that's the first time they've ever met? Well, I know that they met, you know, because they met when Bundy was in prison. But like the idea because that they like, were James, they, they were but James Dobson they were can, involved you know. together in all of those killings. <laughs> Because he believed, because, you know, Dobson supposedly converted uh, Ted Bundy. Focus. To, uh, he doesn't just want to focus on the family. He wants to focus on your family and kill them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Laser focus on the family. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, okay. So uh, you're James Dobson and I'm, I'm Ted Bundy in this situation. <laughs> Is that how it's okay? Yeah. Very interesting. That's the faith. That's the faith our families have latched onto. Just understand that. Just understand that for eternity. Steve, this is a question from Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we just end it there? Because <laughs> that seems like a great place to end it. There's not a lot of podcasts. They're <laughs> discussing the Dobson-Bundy relationship. Uh, this is from Gareth in Aberdeen. This is a long question, Steve. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to to not fumble this. All right, so Steve, in this season, we learned that you have the uncanny ability to regrow nipples. Mm-hmm. In essence, you're an X Man. Granted, your superpower is somewhat benign. <laughs> I I have a pro- <laughs> I, have, I have a proposal. So far, I don't I haven't seen the end goal. <laughs> I have a proposal for you to consider. My older brother is a research scientist at a university here in Scotland. His success has always annoyed me, but maybe you can help. I propose that you allow me to study you here in my garage. (laughs) (laughs) I will publish my findings and taunt my older brother, and you can parlay this notoriety to start a school for gifted children. What do you think? First off, I love any um, any mission uh, that is fueled by spite is a mission I, I'm automatically intrigued by. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Which is essentially how uh, Americans got to the moon, right? <laughs> it, it really is how we got to the moon. And it is also the origin story of many different supervillains. Right. But I mean, all right. So here's the deal. Gareth, and I hope you're listening. Um, I've never been to Scotland. If you're willing to cover travel and boarding, I'll let you do whatever you want to me in your garage. I'm sure he's just going to have you sleep in the garage. Uh, I don't think if I'm going to be at his garage, I'm going to allow myself to sleep at any moment during this trip. (laughs) He just wants to poke at your nipples, man. I, I think well, that you're missing the you're missing the point that's, here. That's I, the I really, gateway. <laughs> I think he's got other other things in mind. Well, I think the obvious question is: Does it stop? Does the regeneration stop at the nipples? Right. So yeah. it's yeah. So that's going to be the question, and that's and I don't know where we go. I from mean, there. if you think about it, I like the way he's framed this. It is he calls it your uncanny ability to regrow right. nipples. I think. Yes, as far as a superpower goes, it may be the most worthless superpower ever. Again, we don't know. 
It's because not over yet. because nipples on men are really not useful in the first place. So well, having think, the ability the fact of, that they for unlimited, it's like unlimited <laughs> well. uselessness. <laughs> well, I mean, it just seems like it seems like clearly maybe there's more to the physiology than we we understand, right? I mean, and I think what what, what we've learned from this is that the Wolverine is clearly uh, not circumcised. He can't be. Well, I mean, no. he could be for a minute. <laughs> He could be be accidentally every time he tries to pee. Right. So, all right. So, good. We've got sort of the beginnings of of an interesting relationship with Gareth. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, if the next Q&A takes place from Scotland, you'll know Gareth's brother's about to be brought down a notch. (laughs) Uh, For Steve. Mm. Loving the podcast... If you were to do a non-Game of Thrones podcast, what would it be about? Have you ever discussed it? We actually have discussed this uh, from time to time. Um, yes. Uh, you, you've had a number of good ideas, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, well, see, Anthony and I, we have a lot of shared experience. And, you know, um, we whether it's through film or or you know television shows or just you know whether it's been uh like the aforementioned religious commonality in terms of our upbringings um just living in west county of california you know there's lots to discuss there um i don't i mean i don't know if we've settled on anything or i know we've, we've kicked no some we haven't off. i mean it sounds like we've had a few ideas uh i mean one of the because of our commonalities i thought it'd be fun to do a Stranger Things podcast mm-hmm. because that's kind of our era. Right. But my idea was that we wouldn't just cover the show, we'd cover the movies and pop culture phenomena that show up in the show. Right. So kind of like a little bit of the rewatch to discuss and then also the the nuance uh the nuances that are sort of embedded into each well, like little easter eggs, right? Like exploring mm-hmm. those. Some some are a little bit more uh, obvious than others, um, so that that could so be. That fun. was one of my ideas. What what was one of your ideas? Well, I had an idea, and it may just be more of just me uh, talking to the void. Where I was, I wanted to have uh, a podcast that just discussed every single aspect of the movie Lost Boys. Just Lost Boys, all the time. The- Right, like so, like you know, an entire episode. Like, there's a point where uh, when the grandpa opens up the refrigerator to tell Michael about what rows of the refrigerator, what shelves he can use, and like one of the ones that like you can't use, there was a peanut butter boppers in there. Um, and like so, like for me, an entire episode, if at least one episode, would be discussing uh, peanut butter boppers, the Nature Valley uh, hidden gem that you know we all want to come back, but for whatever reason. Okay. Another idea that you had that I liked was related to 80s sitcom specials. Oh, yeah. A very special podcast. Yeah, because it was very popular in the 80s and 90s, too, I guess, where they would have like a very special episode of of something, right? Like, you know, whether it's Alex P. Keaton's uncle played by Tom Hanks, who turns out to be a drunk. You know, it starts off hilarious, but then it ends, you know, very serious. Um, yeah, so then, for the younger younger listeners, there used to be this thing with sitcoms where, like, once every couple of years, they would try to do a serious episode to kind of teach us about things like addiction or, you know, some kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know, like molestation or something. Right. 
Wesley from Mr. Belvedere, his friend, got AIDS during the summer. Yeah, teach us so. a little bit about AIDS. Yeah. In a, so, in a humorous fashion. Yeah. Almost humorous fashion? Sure. Mr. Belvedere, sneaky amount of special episodes. Besides the AIDS episode. Besides the AIDS episode where the older brother gets really drunk and he ends up like, there's concern he has a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Wesley uh, on the Boy Scout trip. The entire uh, series where a weird British guy just lives with him. <laughs> no, I'm here to fold your clothes and your unmentionables. And everyone's like, oh, okay. His name is Lynn. That seems fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're suggesting that the entire premise of the show is a little odd? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The idea that Bob Euchre needs a British butler. Yeah, a little odd. <laughs> okay, this is from uh, WD and her feline dragons. Mm, mm-hmm. This is so for far, me, so but it's it's kind of for us both because it says for... Well, anyway, it says, okay, here's a little technical question for you or Steve. Did Jamie tuck in the junk before going over to help Bran? I mean, if you're in the middle of things and you get surprised, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. Given the context, I think WD is talking about in the book, before Jamie pushes Bran out the window. Mm-hmm. So he's having sex with his sister. Right. He sees Bran, who's about to fall, and then he uh-huh. like grabs onto Bran to save him from falling. Uh-huh. Then they have their little exchange, and then he says, the things I do for love, and he pushes Bran out the window. Right. Uh, WD and her feline dragons want to know, is Jamie the kind of person who would tuck in his junk before doing that? Because the book doesn't say. Right. Now, I did rewatch I, the I have scene my thoughts, in the and show. I'm curious, I'm, I'm curious to yeah. hear your thoughts, but I have my Yeah, thoughts. let me say my thing, and then I'm, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. I did rewatch that little scene in the show, and I think that you just see Jamie like wearing a tunic from behind, and I think mm-hmm. that there's this slight move to tuck in the junk. It's it's almost imperceptible. You're suggesting that that in, in the moment where he gets discovered that he's having sex with his sister mm-hmm. and is about to... to attempt to murder a child uh mm-hmm. there was a little bit of discretion on jamie's part yeah i don't think he's decided to murder brainy i think his in the book at least he jumps up out of the act of coitus and like grabs bran who's about to fall so i think he is like his first inclination was to save a child who's in you know peril right in that moment when he's feeling very helpful uh i don't know what he does with his genitalia. Um, I, so that's all of the, that's all the information that I can offer, but I'm curious to hear what you think, Steve. So I think, uh, I think the timeline goes coitus. Yeah. Uh, sees brand. Yeah. Uncoitus. Yeah. Tuck. Save. Says the things we do for love. And at the same time that he releases Bran, he untucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It's that's a that, That's even move. worse. That is yeah, even for worse. Sure. Yeah, so that's the evolution, right? It's the, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, 
I think that, and I think if you'd seen that, you're, you're, you know how you know we talk about the 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 journey that Jamie goes on. Is he good? Is he bad? Wrestling match. I think if if they show that in its entirety, I think it's almost impossible to redeem that character later. Oh, absolutely, because when that's pinballs, that's the worst thing when he pinballs Bran out. <laughs> oh, God no. God, no, 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 no. This is the worst thing you've ever said. <laughs> this is the worst thing. I got to delete that. That's that's X-rated. <laughs> so bad. So bad on so many levels. Yeah, but it's a visual. Yeah, that's... Yeah, all right. Uh, I think we're done. I think our relationship <laughs> just ended. I'm, I'm canceling you out of my life. <laughs> Ooh, this podcast is my one-way ticket out of hosting the Oscars. <laughs> for my final bird's eye view for this season, I'd like to expand on a conversation that I had with a number of fellow fans by email. You remember that I asked both Tara and Aaron to name a character who is both a top-flight fighter and a genius strategist. Tara suggested Danny, and Aaron suggested Ned. Both, I think, are wrong. Danny can't control her dragons at this point. And Ned, Ned is, that's not a genius. Let's just, I mean, he's got other qualities. He's not a genius. I'm not saying he's stupid. He's just not a genius. Danny probably will become one of the most feared battlefield badasses. And Ned was a very good battlefield commander, but I think we can move on from these suggestions. I'm looking for characters in the books, so book-specific, based on what we know through the end of Dance. Perhaps I need to define my categories a little bit better. Here's what I think. Let's call the first category Battlefield Badasses. These are characters that you would least want to face in an opposing army. You're standing in a field, and you absolutely do not want to see one of these faces staring back at you from the other line. So this type I'm calling the Battlefield Badasses. The other category I'm calling Genius Strategists. These are characters that are big picture power brokers, negotiators, politicians, Game of Thrones movers and shakers. This means that they aren't just smart, no doubt. Catelyn is super smart, but they're thinking several moves ahead, planning not this battle, but planning the larger war and thinking about the next war too. So my initial thought was that it's generally true in Martin's world that characters don't check both boxes. If you're a top 10 battlefield badass, you're not a top 10 genius strategist and vice versa. Once I have those categories defined, I think it might be helpful to look at some of these lists that the internet has come up with for who the best warriors are in Game of Thrones. A lot of the folks on the internet that do this do keep in mind the show versus not just the books, and we're specifically focused on the books. But I thought it was interesting to look at this particular website, Den of Geek, 15 Best Warriors, in order, Arya, so Arya's number one. Uh, Number two, The Mountain. Jamie, Braun, Brienne, Grey Worm, Jon Snow, Hound, 
Barrison the Bold, Sirio, Loris, the Blackfish, Corn Halfhand, Barrack, and Tormund. So those are 15 names, and that is the order that they're giving. So it's interesting to see that list. I think that they're missing a few people that I would want on that list. How How is 1-1 not on this list? I mean, come on. 1-1 one, one has got to be on the list. He's got to be at the top of the list. Also, you've got 15 names, and you're not going to include Drogo? Um, Robert Baratheon? Come on. In his prime, Robert Baratheon? I think that Aaron would like to see Ned on this list. I'd probably agree with him on that. I'll throw another few names out there. Uh, Rob. You don't want to see Rob on that opposing line. Not when he's got Grey Wind with him. Um, Brown Ben Plum. So there are 15 names on that list, and we've added a few more. So we got about 20. We got a lot to work with. And then I wondered, I wonder if I came up with my list of 15 genius strategists. I wonder if any names would overlap, if any names would make it onto both lists. So here is my list of the top 15 genius strategists as we have them through the end of dance. And I think at the top of my list is going to be Bloodraven. Uh, the rest of these names are in no particular order. So Blood Ravens at the top. Tyrion, Lady Olena, Varys, Illyrio, Littlefinger, Tywin, Marjorie, Renly, Davos, Danny, Melisandre, the High Sparrow. And the last two will probably be controversial, but I'm going to put them on the list. Cersei and Catelyn. So this list does not include, for example, what I consider to be really top-notch field commanders. And those would be like Grey Worm, Rob, and Brawn. These are characters who I absolutely want to plan my battle, execute it. Do I want them planning the overall war? Probably not. Steven emailed in and suggested Rob and Jorah. Okay, Steven, I think... I like the suggestion of Rob, and here's why. I like Rob because I put Tywin in pretty high on my list. I think Tywin's probably top five. And Rob almost won a war against him. So if Tywin's up there, maybe Rob should be up there too. But what was Rob's plan when he was going to, after he beat Tywin in a war? Did he know what he wanted? Was he thinking about this war and the next war too? Probably not. I don't know. Not enough information. Jorah is an interesting choice. Um, as Stephen points out, Jorah usually gives good advice to Danny. Here's how I view Jorah. Jorah gives good advice. He doesn't make mistakes. So I think he's a good counselor. Do I do I know enough about Jorah to think that he could be like a, a, a genius? I don't, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. So anyway, uh, those are good suggestions. They didn't make my list. Chad suggests Renly. Okay, Chad. Um... Yes. In the books, Renly is a formidable presence. He looks like Robert Baratheon come again, and he's an amazing politician. So maybe he could be on both lists. I I think that while he looks the part, do I have evidence of him as a battlefield badass? He can certainly command an army. Do I get the sense that he was as formidable as Robert with a hammer or something like that? Still, not enough evidence. And then there are a couple names that probably will be on the list eventually, that being Arya, Walker Dragons emailed. She suggests Arya, 
who is a will be a battlefield badass, probably already is, and probably also be a genius strategist by the end, but I don't think she's there yet. And then um, Sansa most certainly should be on the list of genius strategists eventually, but she's not there yet. So I think it's generally true, emphasis on the qualifier here, that in Martin's world, if you're a top flight strategist, you're probably not going to be a top flight battlefield badass and vice versa, because that would give one character too much advantage over the rest. But this is exactly why Euron worries me. I think that the glimpses that we have from Winds of Winter suggest that Euron might be a Blood Raven acolyte, and that will give him uh, an enormous advantage, and he's also quite formidable on the battlefield as well. So I'm I'm worried about Euron. I think uh, I think he might make a very interesting adversary for our main characters. Okay, here's how we'll go forward next season, August-ish. Uh, I will have on both uh, Linda Antonsen and Elio Garcia. These are two of the most knowledgeable people about Westeros in the world, Martin's co-authors. I think I might ask this question to either Elio or Linda. And I was thinking that if you had a question for Elio or Linda, you might send those to book at baldmove.com and maybe your question for Linda or Elio will make it into one of those two interviews. Okay, so on August 5th, I will drop my recording with Chad about Eddard 7, that's chapter 30. So between now and then, go ahead and get caught up. If you haven't, some really fun summer reading if you've never read Game of Thrones before, uh, or if you're doing the reread alongside of us. As always, thank you for listening. Please share this on social media or share it with a friend. And of course, we'd really appreciate a rank and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And that's all for this week. <laughs>